Hi, everybody. Patrick Jean-Baptiste here. I normally cut uh, the sort of background uh, happenings of this show uh, because I don't think it's relevant, but uh, I chose to leave a little piece of it in this particular episode because uh, my guest and I have been trying to, you know, get together for a couple of days and we've had some technical difficulties. And so we finally, I finally figured out, we finally figured it out and and it's working now. And so what you're about to hear initially is, you know, the sense of relief that <laughs> we finally are able to, uh, you know, to connect and uh, to start the show. So I thought it would be kind of a good way to, to begin with, uh, with you know, your expectations, uh, with, with failure and then success and uh, the resultant uh, uh, mood uh, that uh, came out of that. <laughs> Yay! Whoa, as Haitians would say, whoa! <laughs> oh, man. Okay. So it's good to know. So that's the solution from now on. <laughs> yes, it was so basic, right? That the, we overlooked it. Yeah, Occam's razor, right? Yeah, yes, so. exactly. Yeah. <laughs> that's got to be a Haitian equivalent to Occam's razor. You know, we have proverbs for just about everything, you know? so It's true. It's true. <laughs> I have to think about it. Yeah. So welcome, Professor George. Welcome to the show. Thank you, Patrick. I'm very happy to be here with you this morning. So the title of your book is The Dear Remote Nearness of You. Uh, I, I, you know, as a Haitian, uh, transplanted second gen Haitian, uh, I kept thinking about that title uh, for a little bit. And I just remembered, it kind of reminded me of how many different, you know, liminal spaces I've had to negotiate throughout my life being in the States, you know, what it means to be Haitian and, and then the context mattered, right? The, what's that, uh, the enigma of arrival, you know, what yes. you hear, what is it, what is it to still be Haitian and when you're surrounded by the majority culture, you know, and all its influences and, and, uh, and so on. So, uh, what does that title, how did you come up with it? Uh, what, what? How long did it take you to come up with it? What's uh, what's going on with that title? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, it didn't take me long to come up with it, but I think I've been living with the sense that I hope it evokes for a long time, the sense of being near and far at the same time to someone or something. I think the experience of, of an immigrant being connected being in one place, but deeply connected to another place at the same time, uh, I think informed that um, that title and negotiating those liminal spaces that you referenced earlier. That has uh, deeply informed my my life, right? As a transplanted Haitian, as an immigrant. Okay. So, uh, has technology helped in any way? Uh, to 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 reconnect or to maintain connection to your to your Haitian roots or culture or sensibilities. 
Of course. Of course it has. I think we have always, I think Haitians tend to be connected to one another by whatever means, whether it's telejol, as we have <laughs> that expression, or through telephones or through, you know, in the early uh, 80s through tapes we would send to one another, letter writing, uh, social media, right? These walls and these screens that we um, attempt to uh, talk to each other through. So technology absolutely supports connection. Uh, can you define your poetic sensibilities? Is there is there something, uh, you know, subjective about it, or are there certain universal qualities to poetic sensibilities? I heard, I hear that word thrown around quite a bit. So can you, you know, flesh that out for us, please? Sure. I think by poetic sensibilities, you're meaning the, my aesthetic influences and emotional influences. And I will say that poetry has been a way of thinking for me, uh, or writing poems has been a way of thinking for me, a, a, a space of inquiry, a way to make sense of the world. Um, as a young person, I, of course, was negotiating these two, these two cultures that I belong to, the Haitian culture uh, in my home that was marked by a set of cultural practices and values, and then broader American culture. Um, and the subcultures within, you know, what we'll call American culture, Black American culture, for example, which shares some features with, but also differs from Haitian culture or Black Haitian culture. So negotiating all of that, um, having to deal with competing narratives, cultural difference, shifting terrain and perspectives, fluidity and identity, um, had me trying to find a place in which I could ask questions around all of these negotiations I had to uh, engage in. Mm -hmm. And so poetry was that space of inquiry for me. And also, I, I like to think of poetry as a way to construct sort of new, a place to construct new meaning, mm -hmm. right? And so uh, I really, and, and, and to sort of explore simultaneity in meeting. So, mm -hmm. you know, a basic poetic um, device is the metaphor, right? It's a mm -hmm. fundamental poetic device. Like this is like that, or this is that. So you can hold two ideas um, in mind simultaneously. And so I really love poems that move quickly, that are bold in their associative property, that engage the metaphor, mm -hmm. um, so, so the, yeah, so I, I love poems that do that and also poems that attend to sound because uh, poetry comes out of the oral tradition. Mm -hmm. Most cultures have what we call poetry and many of those poetic traditions are rooted in the oral. So, so poems that attend to song and also um, poetry that... Uh, can resemble sculpture too, or that asks me to sort of chisel away at it to make it. And, and this speaks to poet aesthetic influences, like the style or construction of of the poems. Not necessarily content, right? Mm -hmm. But I imagine we'll we'll take some of that up too. Right. Mm -hmm. Yes. Definitely. Uh, how does uh, uh, being you know multilingual? Uh, how many languages do you speak? By the way, if you don't mind my asking. Like, sure. I try to speak, speak English. <laughs> 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 I, I speak 
French and I speak Creole, of course, because I'm Haitian. Not all Haitians speak Creole, but I, I, I learned to speak Creole. I grew up in the United States, but I realized Creole for me was a language of power because it was what the Gamun spoke, right? right. And it in some ways sort of catapulted you once you started speaking Creole. For me, it started, it catapulted me into the world of Gamun. Right. <laughs> so, so how does, how does that help you with, uh, as far as your, you know, your poetic tools or, you know, uh, in terms of the, your poetic sensibilities, how, how does that help you being able to sort of move between different languages? Uh, how does sure. that inform, inform your, your, your poems? Yeah, I feel that I have a great deal to draw from. Like in languages are embedded cultures, right? Mm -hmm. And so being able to speak the languages that I speak allows me to, to move through a variety of worlds um, and to attempt to reflect those worlds and attempt to reflect too uh, how challenging it might be to sometimes move through those, you know, move through those worlds um, and, and the beauty of being able to move through those worlds uh so does does a does does language sometimes fall short uh and and encapsulating the totality of of a particular experience or event you're trying to uh to capture do you find it falling short sometimes that's a great question and sometimes it does i think and i think one of the uh, challenges and great roles of people who deal in language, like poets, writers, journalists, is to find the language that can reflect what we're witnessing, what we're experiencing, what has never been before articulated. One of the perks of having a genuine poet laureate on your show is to get her to actually recite a few of her poems. Poem for the poorest country in the Western Hemisphere. Oh, poorest country, this is not your name. You should be called Beacon. You should be called Flame. Almond and Bougainvillea, Garden and Green Mountain, Villa and Hut. Girl with red ribbons in her hair, books under arm, Charmed by the light of morning. Charcoal seller in black skirt. Encircled by dead trees. You country are merchant woman and eager clerk. Grandfather at the gate. At the crossroads. With the flashlight. With all in sight. All right. Awesome. So what's, uh, what's going on there? Yeah. After the 2010 earthquake, which we're all familiar with, I was asked to contribute a poem to, that would go into a magazine uh, connected to relief efforts. And I felt that Haiti was constantly being referred to as the poorest country in the Western Hemisphere, as I was observing uh, the news and reading the news here in the United States. And I felt that that uh, prefix, if you will, or that suffix, rather, 
was problematic. Uh, it seemed to be the only thing, the only sort of uh, metric that Haiti was, that was used for Haiti. Not, uh, and often there was not a discussion of how Haiti had become impoverished, right? Mm-hmm. Um, there often wasn't reference to how it was struggling under IMF and World Bank and inter-American bank debt uh, on the one hand, but also served as uh, a model for liberation movements in Latin America, in Africa, in other parts of the world. So it seemed like a very limiting label, and I wanted to take it on Somehow, So this is how the poem emerged. Again, another poem that emerged in the aftermath of the 2010 earthquake. Mm-hmm. It's entitled Intersection. And again, I was asked to write a poem in support of relief efforts. And I found it really challenging because I was just overwhelmed by the sense of the scale of the loss, right? That almost... Well, 200,000 people lost their lives either in the earthquake or or shortly thereafter. Mm -hmm. These, many of whom could be living today had it not been for structural violence or overcrowding in Port-au-Prince, certainly compromised government, international intervention uh, in Haitian governmental affairs. And so I, um, this is what emerged. Intersection. The earth shook. A portal opened. I walked through it. The earth shook. A portal opened. I walked through it. The earth shook. A portal opened. I walked through it. The earth shook. A portal opened. I walked through it. The earth shook. A portal opened. I walked through it. I walked through it. I walked. The earth shook. A portal opened. I walked through it. Ash. Earth. The earth shook. A portal opened. I walked through it. I walked through it. I walked. The earth shook. A portal opens. I walk through it. So, uh, what happens when your poem runs away from the meaning you originally intended for it? I, uh, <laughs> I, uh, you, back channel wise, you and I had a, <laughs> a particular poem, the I Want You piece, uh, which to me, from the uh, you know male lizard brain perspective, uh, <laughs> seemed very intimate. Uh, uh, so uh, <laughs> I thought it had something to do with you know uh, 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 public displays of affection. Uh, it brought to mind public displays of affection, and you basically were like, "What? <laughs> Where did you get that? It's about X, Y, and Z." Can you talk a little bit about? Uh, I want you, what was the impetus behind it? And then you can read it and then tell me how, quote unquote, I got it wrong, not necessarily, but yeah. <laughs> well, yeah, yeah. I um, I don't know that you got it wrong 
more than perhaps I, the poem contained some ambiguity. And so the poem in it, I was, I was attempting to explore the connections between intimacy, violence, and power. And, um, the uses of the black body in the colonial world. Uh, and so I thought the, I guess it's a sort of colonial love poem, if you will, right? Mm-hmm. That, that, the, that the enslaver needs and desires the enslaved to the degree that they will sort of execute their will and enriching them, right? So there's there's a kind of desire, mm-hmm. right? But it's a very uh, destructive and twisted desire. Mm-hmm. But it's a desire nonetheless, right? Mm-hmm. And I was interested in exploring violence as a cultural practice, mm-hmm. as a dangerous cultural practice. Uh, so my intention was not to be unclear, but rather to underscore the slippery nature of certain exercises of power. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So, so here's the poem. Okay. I want you. For your back, I want you. For the ease. For your form, I want you. Your mind free, so to please only me. For your hands and your feet, And sweet slack, I want you. For your easily identified black, I want you. For years, I want you. For years and more years and your life, I want you. For your kind, I want you. For all time, I want you. It's a crime, I want you. At times, don't know when, don't know how, I want you. In a line, I want you. For what's mine, I want you. For science and art and what's fine, I want you. Yes, indeed. Yes, indeed. I want you. So uh, I, I, I started thinking about uh, after, you know, the process of like once, you, once you're done with a, with a poem, it's submitted to the publishers and... And now it's in print. Do you ever do you ever quit your last poems where you had you second guess yourself? You say, "Man, I wish I could have. I wanted to say X, Y, and Z." Or is it like when you're done with it, you're done with it, and whatever it's out in the world now, I have no control over it. Do you, do you ever second guess? You know, necessarily, you know, intentions or meanings, you know that might have changed or your perspective that might have changed? Or is this something that's frozen in time? Whatever it is that the perspective you wanted to convey at that time, and then it's done, it's done. Or do you ever want to go mm-hmm. back? Yeah, typically when I'm done with a poem and I've sent it out for publication and it appears in the world, it's it's more or less done for me. I might return to it after a year and think, oh, I could have done something differently. I could have... Um, used a, a, a more sophisticated, a more sophisticated phrase or another word here, but essentially it's done. There's an expression uh, in the art world. I can't remember who came up with it, that a work of art is never finished, but abandoned. Right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so that you can move on to, 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 
to the next work, to what mm-hmm. you're thinking about, to the next problem, to the next question, right? Mm-hmm. So we can't remain frozen in time. I, I don't think we can, right? right. I don't think it's useful. We're <laughs> not yet anyway. That's right. It's not useful to remain frozen in time. Uh, so, so you send the what you consider your your best work at the time out. It goes out. It can be read in particular ways, right? Mm-hmm. And then you 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 move you move on. Mm-hmm. Uh, can you read the binary death piece uh, for us? Uh, I, I, sure. I kept thinking, it seemed very mathematical to me, but then, you know, I'm formally trained that way, so maybe it has a lot more to do with that. You know, this whole binary or being or not being, nothing is something, mm-hmm. that's what was kind of going through my mind as I was reading it. Can you read that for us and give us of course. background on it? Sure. Binary death. To say death is death is to raise metaphor's shadow from the dead would not be good. So from some dark, so from some dark, leap from unlike to unlike, a deepening, not frying pan and fire, but fire and then none, none being the opposite of whatever, the there and the not, knotted to, once double, once, both, once, once. Now, you want me to explain this, Patrick. Yes, ma'am. <laughs> <laughs> but the poem is doing... <laughs> What's that? <laughs> this is the work of the poem. <laughs> That's right. That's right. <laughs> uh, but, but I said, like I said, for me, it evoked... I was like, right, this is very... Not structurally, but just to me, I kept thinking, why well, this is very kind of... You know, things keep canceling each other out for me in my head. That's what it meant to me. <laughs> yeah. But, yeah. It but, was it was an exploration. I was thinking about the metaphor. Uh, you know, we were talking earlier about the metaphor being two things at once. Yes. Right? Mm-hmm. And so thinking about two things at once and then one thing at once that has resulted as that has been the result of two things being compared or two things sort of fusing. Mm-hmm. So it, it was a, a sort of, a, I don't know if it's a philosophical or some, it was a meditation, let's mm-hmm. call it that, mm-hmm. on the idea of the metaphor. Uh, the metaphor on the one hand and then the direct experience Right, mm-hmm. the, the the experience that that doesn't employ figurative language, just the thing itself. Mm-hmm. Is it uh, is it gauche to ask a poet to explain their poem? <laughs> like no. I'm doing now. <laughs> <laughs> oh, Patrick, you are so gauche. I don't know if I can continue with this interview because I'm just offended and horrified. Um, <laughs> It, it is not. It is not. I, it isn't. I think, you know, there are, there's the poet, th- there's mm-hmm. the artist, and then there's the interpreter. Right. Uh, sometimes the interpreter is the journalist. Sometimes the interpreter is the scholar. Mm-hmm. Right. Sometimes the interpreter is the, is the poet herself or himself or themselves. But mm-hmm. absolutely not. Okay. Okay. Just wanted to make sure. Uh, you're, you're the first poet laureate I've had on, so I, ha- I have to kind of know what the ground rules are, you know? Okay. Uh, <laughs> Dominican uh, piece. Uh, yes. There's a, a, a line in there, I wanted a blameless birth. 
And I think I told you that I was thinking like uh, what's the opposite of Haitians uh, living in the DR. Their births are stigmatized. Right. And it's not blameless at all. It kind of re- reminded me of this, you know, like the Scarlet Letter. Right. Versions of the Scarlet Letter uh, living in the DR, you know, from the minute they're born. So yes. uh, can you talk about that, why you decided to change the, the title from Dominican to, what's the new title? Let's a, a Stateless Poem. A Stateless Poem. Can you talk about that, why you changed the title? And so, so I wrote a poem entitled, uh, originally, A Dominican Poem. Uh, which I changed to a stateless poem. The poem addresses the September 2013 ruling by the Dominican Republic Constitutional Court that stripped citizenship of Dominican-born persons uh, without a Dominican parent, going all the way back to 1929. And as we know, the majority of the persons affected uh, were Dominicans of Haitian descent. And so I was, uh, of course... uh, deeply disturbed um, by the ruling, as were many people in the international community and, and, and Haitian communities, um, and as were friends of, of Haiti, and felt the need to somehow take uh, this up. I felt the need to respond to what was taking place and to bear witness, hence Hence the poem. I entitled it a Dominican poem because it had to do with what was taking place uh, to Haitians, to Dominicans, actually, not even Haitians, to Dominicans of Haitian descent, right, mm-hmm. who were being rendered stateless, stateless, whose whose citizenship was being citizenship and all the rights that accompany it uh, were being um, stripped. I realized that in calling it a Dominican poem, I was possibly indicting all Dominicans, and hence the the, the changing of the title um, mm-hmm. to speak about uh, statelessness. What happens, right? Mm-hmm. Um, to consider it, and there's a line in it in which I'm considering. I'm sort of juxtaposing those whose um, whose citizenship has been stripped with those who maintain citizenship. And so I used, um, you know, who are we who move so freely without accents of identification, without skin of identification, with all manner of identification, with gold seals of approval, with stamps of good fortune, with the accident of blameless birth. So I was being ironic um, uh, about uh, the accident of blameless birth. Um, right, and thinking about citizenship not being automatic or accidental, right, Mm -hmm. but a result of national policy uh, in the case of the Dominicans of Haitian descent um, as a result of anti-black racism, anti-Haitian racism. Uh, And so that's why I I wrote the line with the accident of blameless Mm -hmm. birth. So this is a a very pedestrian type of question do you use a computer or pen and paper to compose i use both i i use whatever is available to me in the moment of inspiration (laughs) (laughs) yeah so so are you are are you uh, are you governed mostly by 
what what inspires you to put it on paper or do you have are you methodical in terms of you know i wake up at x in the morning i'm gonna sit down and do y or uh, what's the process like for you as far as yeah i wish i were one of those i wake up at five in the morning uh and write furiously with flames emerging from my laptop the kind of people i'm not uh i write when i'm inspired i'm right when i'm incensed i write when i'm struck by by some something and have the opportunity to jot something down on paper Mm -hmm. on my phone or you, Mm -hmm. you know try to sear it into my mind a line i was um just last night listening to the news about Ukraine and there was somebody on the ground who was referring to uh, the need for a no-fly zone and he said we have to close up the sky and I thought wow that's <laughs> that's mm-hmm. a really interesting way to say this right mm-hmm. to close the sky up what would it mean to close the sky up and I thought mm-hmm. okay maybe that will end up in in a poem but that said, I do have deadlines and projects, and so I try to be as disciplined as I can to to meet those deadlines and to complete those projects. Do do uh, what kind of uh, you know events or experiences uh, sort of get your poetic spider senses tingling more? Is it like tragic situations or, or hopeful? Or injustices. What? What are so are the visceral things, the visceral experiences? You know, or it doesn't mm. matter. You just whatever captures your your you know your you at any particular period of time. Whatever you're observing is what gets you going. Like, what? What? Yeah. 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 Great question. All of the above, <laughs> and I. I though. As you know, my life has been deeply marked by political factors, including Mm -hmm. a U.S.-backed dictatorship that forced my family, along with so many other families, to repatriate. So I've written uh, many poems about Haitian identity, uh, Haitian migration, troublesome representations of Haiti uh, in U.S. mainstream culture, from from my position as an artist in the Haitian diaspora, mm-hmm. also feel and so you know I wrote about the um, the Dominican court ruling of 2013. I wrote about the um, in response to the earthquake. Uh, I feel that uh, you know my poems, by and large, are um, sort of revolve around themes of voice, self identification. Uh, how ideas are expressed and disseminated, mm-hmm. representation. I'm interested in issues of social justice, especially as it pertains to black people, people of the African diaspora, Haitians, people of color, women of color, black women, uh, representational redescription, if you will. Mm-hmm. So these are the topics that I, I think my work revolves around i also think that that or i'd like to think that it it sits within the um engage tradition of haitian art and letters a tradition in which uh politics or political concerns are not um political and in which political and aesthetic concerns are are tied Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. yeah is, is the personal the political and vice versa for you? Yes, the personal is the political. Okay. And, and the political, the, per, the personal. 
Okay. Um, yeah. Okay. So it's not necessarily you, Danielle, as the individual, but Danielle within the context of the larger forces, uh, uh, you know, doing whatever they're supposed to be doing to us, right? <laughs> yeah. Well, yes and no. The, the um, cultural theorist and the writer Gloria Ansel's Dua says that she writes to rewrite the stories that others have miswritten about her, mm-hmm. right? About her and about us about she says about me and about you to become mm-hmm. more intimate with myself and with you so her her work is both personal and more broadly reflective mm-hmm. and I, i'd like to think that my work operates on both those levels it's both personal and and perhaps broadly reflective so, so do you uh, do, do you dis- distinguish between being the observer of events around you as opposed to a participant or is it all sort of a of a blend in there for you how do, how do you we keep we, we talk in this interview about uh, this conversation about liminal spaces right moving mm-hmm. moving through different spaces like what do you feel are you conscious of when you're the observer versus when you're the participant is there a line or is this all sort of a blend or, or do you make that distinction at all uh, yeah, I think it depends on the, on the moment, the environment, what's happening. If I'm at a rally, for example, I'm clearly participating. Well, <laughs> I might be participating, right? right. <laughs> <laughs> and be observing. So I'm a participant observer. Right. Oh, you might be, somebody might be observing you, right? Th- that's that's true. <laughs> si gon pétécouille, I might be in the pétécouille too. That's right. <laughs> 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 uh, you know, if I'm in an audience observing a, a, a beautiful dance uh, performance, then I, I'm much more in the role of observer. And okay. sometimes I will actively place myself in, in the role of, of observer. And that, of course, is predicated upon things being calm and my being able to choose to do so, right? So it, it, mm-hmm. it all depends. But I think everything ends up in the... Well, certainly everything ends up in my mind and then possibly, um, and then what, what portions of those experiences and those observations um, uh, ends up in the poems sort of, you know, is another question. So how many of these uh, ideas that come in your mind that you don't get a chance to put on paper and then you hate yourself afterwards because you forgot them? Um, How often does that happen? (laughs) A a good number. (laughs) A a good number. But on the other hand, too, sometimes an experience will stay in my mind for decades and then manifest uh, itself uh, in a poem, you know. Later, wow. I like I have a poem entitled "We Eat Cold Eels and Think Distant Thoughts," and it's mm-hmm. um, it's a statement made by the American boxer Jack Johnson. He was asked, mm-hmm. you know, in the early part of the 20th century by a white reporter why white women were attracted to black men like him, which had absolutely, which is ridiculous, which had absolutely nothing to do with his boxing skill mm-hmm. or, or anything, right? It just had to do with the fact that he was miscegenating and not conforming to, to quote unquote, you know, to, 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 to social, to, to white supremacist norms, mm-hmm, right? Mm-hmm. And, um, 
he, he said, yeah, he said, he responded to that question, why are white women attracted to you? He said, because, because um, we eat cold eels, black men. We eat cold eels and think distant thoughts. And I thought, touche. <laughs> like, what, what a brilliant response to yeah. like a ridiculous question. Yeah, now, so I heard that story just you know, sort of fairly recently about Jack Johnson's response. But you know, twenty years prior, many years prior, I lived in Chicago and would go occasionally to the Chicago Aquarium, where I met an eel. Right, that was in its tank. I realized was observing me, observing it. Wow! And it terrified me. I thought, "Oh my God, this creature is clearly very, very sentient." And I learned that it was a very old eel, like about a hundred years old. So I thought, "Okay, this creature is older than me. Mm -hmm. It has a particular kind of intelligence. It is observing me, observing." it. Wow. And it terrified me and that experience stayed. Okay? And so then when I heard about the Jack Johnson story, I thought, oh, these two eels, the eel at the Chicago Aquarium I met and who terrified me and the eel of Jack, Jack Johnson's witty repartee belong together. And then I wrote a poem about both those as a way to examine what we do when we're confronted with something whose intelligence we understand pretty quickly is greater than ours. Mm -hmm. Do you remember that poem? Can you read it for us? Sure. Sure. I will read it. It's called, We Eat Cold Eels and Think Distant Thoughts. <laughs> we eat cold eels and think distant thoughts, said American boxer Jack Johnson, glistening like a fish to the newsman who asked him why white women were drawn to black men like him. What is it like to eat cold eels and think distant thoughts? What is it like to be a black man who eats cold eels and thinks distant thoughts? What is it like to be a black man who thinks to say we eat cold eels and think distant thoughts to a white reporter early 1900s America who wants to reduce him to meat, to red, to sexual. Once in the Chicago Aquarium a long time ago, I met an eel, I was told by the label on his large tank, weighed 53 pounds and was 100 years old. It looked at me with such a fierce intelligence through the glass and silty water of its address its gray bald head almost human, its two lidless eyes, its small nose holes, and instead of a body below its head, no body but a tail of fluid form, one great muscle behind ears that were not ears but also holes, its whole body beating a slow chilled rhythm that kept it afloat, and a cool terror shot through me as it watched me watch it, as it followed me through the liquid wall that split our worlds and separated our species. Wow. 
So what uh, what was terrifying to you? Is it the abyss staring back at you, or what? What was it? Uh, what, what what did you find? Did you ever find out what the source of that terror for you was? That is it? Yeah. It, it. I think it was a combination of things. One, the, I knew the thing was older than. Like I was not expecting the this creature in this cage. Well, not a cage, but in this um, enclosure to track me. Mm-hmm. It was tracking me. It was watching me. That was the one thing that, that terrified me about it. The other was that the eel's head looked very much like a human head. So there was like some semblance to, to us, human mm-hmm. beings, but there was also this long tail which made it utterly alien to me. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Right? I mean, we, we like mammals because they're furry. <laughs> you know, right, they've, right, got, right. they've got four legs and we have four limbs. And, but you know, eels and snakes, for me anyway, <laughs> are, right. are, you know, I, I view as completely alien. And, mm-hmm. But yet there was some communication. There was this interspecies, clearly interspecies communication. And, and I, I, I felt that it understood what was taking place. And that wasn't my expectation. I went to the, to the aquarium just to go see the aminals, you know, as mm-hmm. the kids say, right, so go right. see the aminals. And here this thing was observing me. When wow. I, perhaps it switched the roles. I think I went in expecting to be the observer mm-hmm, and, mm-hmm. and then realized quickly that I was being observed. Wow. So what, what would happen if the world suddenly had no poets, you know, like Thanos snapped his fingers and only, you know, poets uh, disappeared. And uh, what would the world be like? I, sorry, I have to use these novel <laughs> metaphors because we're being bombarded by it. That's the frame of reference. <laughs> so what, what would happen for the world for like five years, right? And then everybody snapped back. What, what would be missing? How would we feel it? That mm. poetry is no longer in the world. That is that is a provocative question, Patrick. So <laughs> provocation. Um, <laughs> first, I'll say that with your reference to the Thanos snap, right? You have made clear your use of figurative or poetic language. Why? Thank you. <laughs> With this use of the simile. (laughs) Moreover, my friend, (laughs) the the character Thanos in the superhero movie Avengers Affinity Way, right? We're we're nerding out. End game, end game, right? (laughs) Snaps his fingers and half the universe is... uh, is wiped out, including our beloved Black Panther, King and Protector of the Nation of Wakanda. Yes, exactly. (laughs) It's gone. So I will remind you, too, that before you saw that movie, that movie was a film script, which was written by people, screenwriters with poetic sensibilities. You Mm -hmm. see where I'm going here. (laughs) So the film is is a work of imagination, of the human imagination, right? Mm -hmm. Films, literature, visual art, poems are works of the human imagination. Imagine if all of that were were gone, Mm -hmm. right? Imagine if all of that were gone. If we didn't have, like we may not feel it in five years, right? Mm -hmm. But we would feel it in a generation or, or two, right? If we didn't have the poets, we wouldn't have the great texts that tell us who we are. 
Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Right. The narratives of human civilization, like the Bhagavad Gita, right? Mm-hmm. A 700 verse scripture considered one of like the holy scriptures of Hinduism. Mm-hmm. We wouldn't have Song of Songs in the Bible written by King Solomon. I mean, it will, it may shock you to know that the Bible was actually written by human beings, right? With poetic but, sensibilities. Right. Right? <laughs> we, we wouldn't have the Quran, right? One of the finest works of, of classical Arab literature, right? That started, some would argue, as, as, as an oral text, uh, you know, that consists of verses that contains great musicality, great poetic language. We wouldn't have any of that. And then moving sort of back, you know, back into time or forward into time, right? Um, who would there, who would there be to resist autocrats and dictators and fascist rulers? We know, we know, you and I know certainly, uh, because we've observed it, or we know it from the history of Haiti. That you know, when a dictator rises, who are some of the first people who get thrown into jail? The writers, the artists, the Mm -hmm. poets, the journalists, right? The press who can reflect what is actually taking place in the culture on the ground, right? Who can counter political narratives, Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. right? Yeah. So... It, it can't be snapped out. No. <laughs> Basically. <laughs> no, yeah. no. Yeah. I would argue. Because it, it's part of language and it's part of human expression, however, whatever form that language takes, right? Absolutely. Poetry, yeah. you know, literature and poetry and the arts make us human. They give us new language, new, new ways to understand our world. I think there would be just a gaping hole in human knowledge experience and, and human pleasure, too, mm-hmm. uh, if we were to, uh, if the poets were to disappear um, in that Thanos snap. Yeah. Well, I do want to um, just underscore the recent attacks on academic freedom and campus free speech mm-hmm. and school book bans, uh, attempting to censor books that take on issues of racial justice and LGBTQ issues mm-hmm. as very, very dangerous. Um, and, uh, you know, and for our need to be vigilant around that. Mm-hmm. And how would you suggest we do that to, to push back? How, how, what are some ways you think we can push back? I think it's it's important to, especially for parents, mm-hmm. understanding what a book ban is, right? Mm-hmm. That um, removing a book from uh, a library or a classroom isn't always straightforward, mm-hmm. right? So when there are lists that come around identifying books or authors who may seem inappropriate, that this is the moment to to um, engage those lists, um, speaking out as students and as educators about book bans and putting pressure on decision makers. PEN American, uh, a really wonderful organization, has some useful tools around that. Reporting book bans, right? Mm-hmm. I think that's very important. And understanding what your local legislators are doing with regard to academic speech and curriculum mm-hmm. uh, in schools uh, and whatnot. Yes. So how did this catch us by surprise? Like, why didn't we see this coming, Professor? 
because I, I saw the signs four years, five years ago. Uh, yes. How did, I mean, it, it's, and it's all, even before that, it's always been there, the pushback. Uh, yes. Right? Like you have, and around the world, I, I remember reading somewhere that uh, the first female prime minister in Australia, yes. uh, right after the, uh, you know, the dark forces pushed back. Uh, right. Against that same thing with with uh, uh, Obama, after mm-hmm. Obama, right? Like that's that's kind of peppered throughout our history. Why did why why did we like fall asleep at the wheel and then we're shocked that these people are still around? You know, but, like are, are we complacent and because we think we're culturally, you know, our, our ideology is is dominant, you know, or therefore we don't have to worry about like they're always going to find a way to. To, 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 you know, rewrite history, so to speak, you know? Right. I, I think we're dealing with some pushback precisely because we're at a moment in which there are more diverse voices in yeah. which, right, mm-hmm. in, in, in which uh, a number of histories are being uh, voiced and, uh, uh, and are elucidating, mm-hmm. right, mm-hmm. us. And yeah. I think I think this is a knee-jerk reaction. I think this is this is this is pushback to changing culture. The U.S. culture is changing. The demographics are changing. Mm-hmm. Interrogation of power, well, has always been there, yeah. but the results of interrogation of power, mm-hmm. right, is changing our culture. And I think what, what we're feeling is this. You know, people who are terrified of mm-hmm. of losing their own power. Where I mean, white supremacy mm-hmm. is terrified of losing the power that it, it has had and the privilege that it that 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 certain people have had in this country. Mm-hmm. And it's had hundreds of years of of practice of keeping it. And uh, yeah, yeah. Uh, do you feel it in the classroom? Questions of power, privilege, equity. Equality, racism, oppression don't not make their way into all kinds of spaces, including literary spaces and literary works. And so I think for those of us who are thinking deeply about literature and culture, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. Um, those questions are important and necessary. Mm -hmm. I hope you enjoyed this episode as much as I did. Please follow us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at Negmawa Podcast. That's Mawa with a W, not an R. Mamma, my 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 mamma,